All right, we'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> so we've been in this section, verses 2 through 7. We've been just seeing the things Paul thanks the Lord for about the Thessalonians. And noting that, hey, if these are things Paul not only thanked the Lord for, but also saw fit to let the Thessalonians know he was thanking the Lord for about them so that they would be encouraged, knowing these are good things in their life, and so they would continue in these things, then let's know all we can about these things so that we can emulate them ourselves, right? So that's kind of the context we've been in here in verses 2 through 7. And as I mentioned, I'll mention this again because it's just natural that we we push toward kind of the the exhortation, right? We want to continue to grow in these areas. We want to continue to do these things better. And yet, the whole setting is Paul observing what the Lord has already done with these things in the lives of the Thessalonians and thanking the Lord for them, right? And so I think one of the first applications is just doing the very same thing here where you in this class are excelling in these ways. There ought to be appropriate commendation, right? And so this is a class in many ways like the Thessalonians where you, dear people, brothers and sisters, do excel in these things. Um, there's certainly there's still room for us to grow more, but doing well. So let's thank the Lord for that, for his work of grace. And yet, as we continue to understand these things better, seek to continue to grow in them. So last week, we looked at the second of these three virtues, the love-motivated labor. I didn't quite get done. There was one last piece I wanted to cover. So we're going to wrap back around and touch on that really quickly and then move into the third one and finish up this second lesson today. So let me read the passage for us. Hopefully you're there already in your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 2. We give thanks to God always concerning all of you, as we mention you in our prayers, because we are incessantly remembering your work motivated by faith, and your labor motivated by love, and your perseverance motivated by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. And we also thank God for you, because we know, brothers, beloved by God, your election. And we know you are elect, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but it also came to you in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what sort of people we were among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us, and of the Lord, by means of receiving the word in much affliction with joy provided by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all who are believing in Macedonia and Achaia. So like I said, last week we considered the second in this list. In many ways, just like the Thessalonians in Paul's time became an example to the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, now echoing through the millennia, they're an example for us too, aren't they? Across the Atlantic, And so we want to press into the second one, finish up the love motivated by labor one, and then move into the third one. So we were looking at love motivated by labor, sorry, labor motivated love, or labor 
motivated by love. I keep saying it the wrong way, didn't I? Like I said, love motivated by labor. Not right. So, just quick review. I gave you two definitions for labor. They say essentially the same thing, but with slightly different words. Activity that is burdensome or hard work implying difficulties and trouble. And we noted that this word for labor differs from that previous word for work or good deeds or service, the, the first virtue, in that this one draws attention to the cost involved in the work, the sacrifices required for the work. And I pointed out that insofar as we're looking at this virtue in the lives of the Thessalonians so we can emulate it, one of the things we should take away is that service, particularly service to the church, but really this kind of labor that's commendable in any context, isn't going to be convenient. It's not something we can expect to do only when there's no cost involved, only when there's no sacrifice to be paid. It's appropriate that our service to the church stretches us. It's appropriate that we make sacrifices for the sake of serving others. So first question we looked at here, this is all by way of review, was what does Paul mean by labor? Then second, what is the relationship between labor and love? And I just simply said here that the love in labor of love is what motivates the labor. Hence me calling it love-motivated labor. And then for the third question, what does Paul mean by love? And how does love motivate labor? So under this question, we first considered, what is the object of this love? Is it primarily love for God or love for other people? And I gave you several lines of evidence in Paul's letters to suggest that in this context, though Paul certainly believes that we ought to love the Lord, in this context, what he has in view is love for other believers. This labor of love is a labor motivated by love for those we're serving. And specifically, as we looked at parallels in other letters of his he not only says it's for other people, but specifically, he probably has in view here other believers. Then we considered, what does Paul mean by love? And the definition I gave you is a warm regard for and interest in another that is often expressed in tangible action for their good. A warm regard for and interest in another that is often expressed in tangible action for their good. And so in this phrase, labor of love, the focus, remember, you have this broad definition for a term, right? But then in any particular context, you might be drawing attention for, to particular aspects of it. And in this context, it seems like the aspect of this definition to which attention is primarily drawn is the first part, the warm regard for an interest in another. Why is that? Well, it seems like the attention is being drawn there because this love is what's motivating some sort of service, right? Labor. And so it would be silly for the emphasis to be on the second part. You know, a tangible action motivating labor. See what I'm saying? It's more like the emphasis here about love is on that warm regard and interest in another that's motivating the labor. But it's natural, right? That's what love naturally does. It works itself out in action. And here it's, it's specifically in that word labor that the love is working itself out in <clears throat> And then I noted that one of the difficulties with putting an emphasis on, just to say it simply, the feeling side of love is that it makes it seem like we can't do anything to cultivate that. It seems like, well, if you focus on the feelings, that's not really something we can change. So then <clears throat> how is that helpful to us? 
And so we talked about how contrary to what we're tempted to think, we actually can influence our feelings. We actually can cultivate a warm regard for an interest in another. It doesn't happen quickly, but as we persist in reminding ourselves of the truth about our fellow believers and believing that truth, so we're reminding ourselves of those truths, we're believing those truths, yielding to those truths in faith, as we're doing that, our regard for them will begin to grow warm. I think often we doubt that that actually happens because it happens slowly, right? I said last week that there's a bit of a lag between when we start changing our thinking and what our feelings do. And so that lag suggests that it's not actually effective, right? <clears throat> but we've got to stick with it, persist in that, and eventually our feelings will begin to follow along. And now let's move to the final point under this third question, and this is where we left off. This is what we missed last week. <clears throat> the importance of love. The importance of love, <clears throat> and specifically here I have in view, in Paul's letters, like Paul regards love as being very important, as we're going to see, and I want you to see that as well. It is no stretch, it is no stretch to say that love for others is the most characteristic evidence of the transformed life of all who follow Christ. Love for others is the most characteristic evidence of the transformed life. I don't want us to miss that. I, I step back a little bit. I'm not, this is like not some sort of highly informed analysis of the church and kind of trends throughout the 20th century. I'm not prepared for something like that, but just generically, I, I wonder why sometimes those who hold most tenaciously to getting, getting doctrine right, to, to understanding truth rightly, sometimes we, it almost seems like we don't emphasize this quite so strongly. Like, there's no doubt, though, if you go to a, a liberal mainline denomination, like love for others and practically serving others will be the focus. I, I might add that's like the only thing they do have, right? That's like the only thing left is being able to do good to others. But therefore, there's a lot of focus on that. But what I want us to realize is we don't have to choose between those, right? Paul did not choose between those. That the love is appropriate, in fact, Notice those connections. As I talked about how we cultivate that love, what are we going back to? Truth, right? We're believing truth. And so those two come together. So let us not just, I don't think anyone has ever, well, I'm sure people have, but nothing that I have in view here is ever like denying that love's important, but let's work hard to cultivate this awareness and pursuit in our own hearts. Consider how we might need to raise love in its level of importance in our own thinking and put more priority on it for ourselves and our pursuit of all the things that you might <clears throat> that might come to your mind as you think what the christian life looks like love ought to be near the top of the list i might even say love ought to be at the top of the list consider some of these following passages from paul obviously it's gonna be a quick sampling Galatians 5.14, <clears throat> Paul writes, For the whole law, think about that, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's not a new concept, that's a concept Jesus touched on, Paul touches on multiple times, this very statement I could have pulled from Romans as well. 
Because he says the same thing there. But still a profound statement. The whole law, like all that God requires of his covenant people is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's why I don't think it's a mistake to say love is love for others is the most characteristic evidence of the transformed life. Before we go there, um, a second consideration. When Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, begins listing out some of these effects the Spirit has in transforming someone, the fruit of the Spirit, where does he begin? Love, right? It's at the top of the list. And entirely regardless of whether you think love is the only fruit of the Spirit, all the rest explain it, or they're all equal fruits of the Spirit. Nonetheless, when Paul begins thinking about those those evidences of the Spirit's work in a believer's life, the first place he goes to is love. Here's a third passage from Paul, helping us see the importance of love for the Christian life. Ephesians 5, 1-2, Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. What's the significance of this passage? Sure, there's a command to walk in love, but what's the significance? Well, I want you to see, first of all, that even though he doesn't spell out the relationship between verses 1 and 2, there's clearly a relationship. Be imitators of God. He never tells us how to be imitators of God. Or does he? Right? The very next thing. And walk in love. It seems like, contextually, that is what he thinks of as the way in context that we are to be imitators of God. Supporting that is notice where he goes right after that. Who's the comparison? Christ, right? Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. So when Paul goes to, at least in this context, when he goes to saying, how should we be imitators of God? What should we do? I would, the first thing in the list, actually the only thing in this list, is loving others. You guys see that? Important for Paul. Secondly, in this passage, notice in verse 2 the, the example, the comparison he makes. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So <clears throat> there are a lot of ways Christ loved people while he was here, aren't there? He could mention the ways he fed people, the ways he healed people, but <clears throat> inconveniently, he goes for the way he gave his life for people, right? Not just as a theological point, but as the example for us. <laughs> so one of the things I want to point out there is that this love to which we're called, not just this love exemplified by Christ, that too, but going all the way to this love to which we're called, knows no limits in its self-giving. This love to which we're called in following Christ knows no limits in its self-giving. So it should be clear from these passages we've looked at in Paul's writings that love for others is the heart and soul of living out your faith in Christ. At the heart of your progress in the Christian life is your progress in self-giving love patterned on the loving self-sacrifice of Christ. So you think about, hey, I want to grow 
in Christ this year. I want to follow him more faithfully. There are a lot of things you can consider there, but don't make even the least of them. (laughs) Maybe make the first of them growing in loving others in practical ways. And that's you individually, but let's even think about expanding that to, to us as a body, as the body of Christ, as a local church. At the heart of the progress of us, our local church is us, the members of this church, growing in our self-giving love exercised toward one another. That's a, say at the heart, right? It's not all there is to be said, but a very important piece in what that's going to look like. And it's also important for us to remember that the kind of love to which we are called is not possible for us apart from the new life we have in Christ. This kind of love isn't possible from that. Isn't possible from that. It's only in being born again that we have the ability to die to ourselves, to turn away from ourselves, to no longer put ourselves at the center of our universe, and to love others after the pattern of Christ. But, being in Christ, knowing the new life that is for those who are in Christ, who have participated in his death and resurrection, and therefore have had their old nature, in their old nature, died and been raised again, we have the ability to do that. So considering what this love is, it isn't surprising that it should motivate labor. Is it? That, that connection seems pretty obvious. At first you stare at a phrase, right? Labor of love, and it's like dense. But I hope that taking some time to unpack it kind of makes it make a lot more sense. It seems much more tangible now. I know what to do with that now. It's not surprising that this labor, this toil, these good deeds would cost us something in terms of time, money, energy, or comfort. But what better motivator to do that than this kind of love? So... We've unpacked this with the aim that this kind of labor motivated by love would be a priority for us. We want to grow in that. And if it's going to be a priority, we must know what it's going to look like in our lives. I think we've talked a bit about that. So I encourage you to take some time this week. Think about what it might look like for you to excel still more in this area. What are ways you can labor in the service, in service of the body, and do so motivated by love. And maybe even the first thing to do is to go back and say, hey, what truths do I need to be remembering about the people in Christ's body that will motivate me to do that? I gave you guys some last week with that little example of the hypothetical obnoxious church member who's hard to love. When it comes to mind renewal, here's one of the simple tricks. It's not really a trick. Simple disciplines that I found I often need. I have to keep those truths before me, right? Meditate is a biblical category. I have to meditate upon them. And I found I just have to write them down on a piece of paper or a note card. And every morning, read over those truths, right? Pray over them. Lord, this is true. I live as though this is not true. I need to believe this. Help me to believe this. And every night, come back to it. How have I done? But this is truth, and this is what I need to be believing. Just to keep it before me. It doesn't work, for me at least, to, to simply, like, here in the moment, think, yes, that's true. I need to think about that more, and that will motivate love. That's good, 
But wow, how quickly that leaves my consciousness, my mind. I have to use discipline to come back and put those truths before me and believe those things by faith. So if you want to think about what would it look like to excel still more, that might be the most kind of the ground level point to enter. Write out some of those truths about fellow believers and meditate upon those daily. Now, if that's to be a priority for us, if it's to be a priority, if it's something important, before we move on, I just want to consider one other area of application, and that is what it might look like for this to be a priority for others we love, others around us. How valuing this quality of labor motivated by love will affect our priorities for those around us. I'm just going to ask a question here. Do you try to protect those around you from this kind of labor motivated by love? It's an interesting way to think about it. Sometimes we find ourselves with those we love wanting to protect them from costly sacrificial service to the body. And yet this is a good thing. And so granted, there are times where people need to be reminded that rest is also needed, right? So there's a lot of stuff that could be said that's important to balance this, but I just want you to think about the fact that it's good to value this. If your spouse has a long night out serving the church, helping with some event, and they come home, you don't have to like tell them, hey, that was really long. You don't need to do that again. It might be good to say, that's good, right? It was hard. How could I help you? How can I encourage you? But it's good to work hard to serve the body. Another question, do we say things to them that, though well-meaning, encourage them to pity themselves for the cost they pay in lovingly serving others? Let's not do that. That's not helpful, right? Granted, I, I keep feeling like I need to add that caveat, right? Sometimes people need to be reminded that they're, they can't do everything. They need to trust the Lord. They need to um, just sometimes step back. I've done all I can and pray. We struggle with that often. But there's also this other side when it comes to how we think about others. And lastly, for other people, let's pray that this labor of love will be manifest in their lives. Pray that it will be manifest in their lives. Thank the Lord for it when you see it. And like Paul, share with them your thanks to God for it when you see it. That's a better way to go about it, right? So let's go back to that scenario. Spouse comes home. 11 o'clock at night after having spent a long day helping with some kind of church event. Don't pity them. Don't help them to pity themselves. Don't say things that are like that. Rather say, I thank the Lord for the way that his grace is evident in your life as you love the body in tangible ways, making sacrifices. That will motivate them helpfully. That will orient them to that task helpfully. Now let's move to the third phrase. Hope motivated perseverance. A big switch here. Thank you for letting me finish that last quality and not miss out on that. But now let's move to the last of these three virtues under this lesson two hope motivated perseverance. Should be pretty easy where this comes from that third virtue, perseverance. Motivated by or of hope. Perseverance of hope. And we're going to do a similar thing we've been doing with the first two. We're just going to ask some similar questions here. 
about this phrase to help us unpack it so we can emulate it. First, what does Paul mean by perseverance? What does Paul mean by perseverance? Perseverance in general, and I think I got all of this to fit on one slide again. So those of you who are wondering how soon it's going to go away, you have till the end. We might go to other verses, but we'll keep coming back to it. So hear me out. What does perseverance mean? Perseverance in general, meaning not necessarily with regard to following Christ, but just in general as a general quality. Perseverance is the continuation in a course of action despite pressures to not continue. The continuation in a course of action despite pressures to not continue. And so when we think about this in the New Testament, as it applies to persevering and following Christ, we simply replace the course of action with following Christ, right? In the New Testament, perseverance is more specifically continuing to follow Christ despite pressures to not continue. And when we say follow Christ, I don't just mean continuing to hold to some idle profession of belief in Christ. I mean that actually shaping your life, right? Obeying him, committed to the mission he's entrusted to his followers. That's what it looks like to continue to follow Christ. So perseverance involves both something we're continuing in, which we've said is following Christ in a New Testament context, but it also involves pressures that would that are trying to keep us from continuing in that, right? So what are those pressures? And specifically, what pressures does Paul have in view in this context? So I'm not saying what possibly could those pressures be, but as Paul's thinking about the Thessalonians, what pressures does he have in view? Well, it could you know, generally be anything that would keep us from following Christ, just generally. Often when we see perseverance mentioned in the New Testament, it's not qualified by any particular thing that might tempt us to stop. And that's probably because the authors have in view anything that would tempt us to stop. But when, when the pressure is stated, you know, when perseverance is mentioned and whatever that pressure is, is stated, overwhelmingly, it's something, some way our life is made more difficult because we're following Christ. Some way our life is made more difficult because we're following Christ, such as persecution, suffering, affliction, and often those are specifically ways that our life is made more difficult with the intention of someone who hates Christ, right? So like what we would usually call persecution. They're like generic afflictions that aren't necessarily someone intentionally doing that to us. It's just, it, it goes with serving the mission of Christ, but then there's specifically the persecution piece. You can see kind of a bit of these examples, both the ones where it's actually intended persecution versus just generic affliction in this short list. Sometimes what we need to endure for the sake of persevering is being hated, being imprisoned, going hungry, being beaten, or being put to death. And we know that the Thessalonians were being persecuted for following Christ from the very beginning. From the very beginning, they were being persecuted for following Christ. So, it's likely that is what Paul has in mind when he speaks about their perseverance here. He has in mind specific persecution. People in Thessalonica who hated this message and wanted to dissuade people from following him by making their life more difficult. So, 
So as we consider what imitation of this would look like for us, the first thing that comes to mind as we think about ourselves imitating this perseverance is, well, this week I'm not likely to undergo persecution like that. But rather than, one thing we could do is we could just expand the application to anything that might keep us from following Christ. And that would be appropriate. Because perseverance can take on various forms. For the Thessalonians, what was tempting them to not persevere in following Christ was persecution. But there could be a variety of other things. So we could expand it. But I'm just going to stick with that one and, and think through that one a bit with us. I want us to think about how we might prepare ourselves now for persecution that might come in the future. I'm not a prophet. I don't know what the future holds. But it at least seems plausible that we might encounter persecution like what the Thessalonians faced in our lifetime. At least seems plausible. And it's good for us to think through how will we be prepared when that comes. And what we hear in this text is an encouragement to not be dissuaded from following Christ regardless of what kind of persecution we might face. It's an encouragement to persevere in trusting Christ and advancing his mission regardless of the cost to us. So that's the perseverance set forth for us, for our imitation. But how are we going to get there? Like, What's going to motivate that? And that's where we go next. Sorry, I skipped some slides here. Persecution is the primary pressure. Here we go. What is the relationship between perseverance and hope? Make this one very simple. Like the last two virtues we've seen, that quality at the end after the of is what's motivating the, the virtue. So in this case, the hope is what's motivating the perseverance. Which leads to our third question. What does Paul mean by hope? And what is this hope? Where are we putting our hope in? And how does this hope motivate perseverance? This will be up there for the rest of the time, so you can take your time in writing this down. What does Paul mean by hope, and what is this hope, and how does hope motivate perseverance? First, what does Paul mean by hope? The definition I gave you here is looking forward to something with reason for confidence that it will be realized. So it's not simply believing something's going to happen, but looking forward to it, right? That looking forward to is intended as like an anticipation, an eager anticipation. I could replace looking forward to with that, right? In eager anticipation for something with reason for confidence that it will be realized. Now, having kind of thought through what does hope, what does Paul mean by hope? Now we got to ask, well, what is my hope in? What is the object of that hope? Unlike the love, Paul tells us explicitly what this hope is in here, fortunately. He says in Christ. Perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And although Paul tells us um, about this hope of believers, that it's in Christ Jesus, he elsewhere fills it out. Like, what does it mean to hope in Christ? What, What all does he have in mind when he says that? And considering more fully the object of the hope Paul has in mind here will help us to embrace this same hope so it will motivate perseverance in us as it did for the Thessalonians. 
So yes, hope in Christ, but what all does Paul have in mind when he speaks of hope in Christ? First, we can glean from many other places where Paul talks about hope in Christ that this is associated with Christ's second coming. It's a hope in Christ associated with Christ's appearing. So that's one way we can fill that out. But when Paul, like, what is it about the second coming, right? Why is that motivating hope? Well, Paul tells us in a variety of letters about the types of things that he associates with that coming that are reason for hope, right? So that's what we need to think about. Christ at his coming will bring about all kinds of realities that will motivate our hope. We need to know what those things are so we can meditate upon them, so we can have hope, so we can persevere, right? There's a pretty clear chain there from what we know and believe to our perseverance. So what are some of those things? It'll be a really quick survey of just some of them. And let me say, we need to understand that certainly for Paul and all the New Testament, there are a ton of things that we presently realize as believers, like good things, blessings of our salvation that we know now. You know, things like forgiveness of sins and a clear conscience, reconciliation with God and a relationship with him, freedom from the power of sin and the ability to do what is right, including fulfilling the task for which we were created, the blessings that accompany righteous living rather than wicked living. But there are also many aspects of God's redemption that we haven't realized yet. They still await Christ's second coming. That's when we will experience them. Here are just a couple of the ones that Paul mentions. Physical resurrection. Bodily resurrection. At Christ's second coming, we will be bodily resurrected, and this is something for which we hope. Paul mentioned that numerous times. I didn't give you, I didn't put these on the screen or give you guys any scripture references, but just one passage where we see that is Romans 8:24, where we are looking forward to our resurrection. A second thing that Paul often mentions that we're looking forward to in the future associated with Christ's second coming is eternal life. Now, on the one hand, we currently possess eternal life, but there's another sense in which we don't yet fully possess it. It's one of those already not yet things. By eternal life, it just means the fullness of life that is characteristic of the eternal age. The fullness of life that is characteristic of the eternal age. We partly know that now, but only in part. And in the future, we will more fully experience that. A third thing that Paul often associates with Christ's second coming is glory, or glorification, we could say. God promises to glorify us at his return. A simple text to think about here is one you guys are all familiar with, Romans 8.30. Right after that long chain, those whom he foreknew, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's this future glorification, and Paul regularly associates this with hope. Many of you remember, he says in Romans 5, 2, that we have the hope of glory, right? The hope of being, sharing in God's glory. And that's a part in Paul's mind of this whole narrative that 
Romans 8, or sorry, not Romans 8, uh, Psalm 8, we were created. When we were created, we were crowned with glory and honor. But in the fall, we lost that. Romans 3.23, right? Falling short of the glory of God. We no longer have that, and yet he's promised through redemption to restore that. So that's the third thing, the glory. It's regularly associated by Paul as the object of hope. It is the object of hope, associated with, with hope. But most relevant in this context is this. The hope, I think I have that up here. Sorry, I got a little behind there. Christ and what he promised he will accomplish at his coming. I'll leave that there so you can see it. <clears throat> Specifically, judgment for the persecutors and vindication and reward for believers. Most relevant in this context is the hope of vindication and exaltation for believers along with judgment of unbelievers. And this is a hope that is particularly relevant in connection with enduring persecution. And we see Paul make these connections explicitly at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians. So I'll give you guys a moment here to finish writing. Then we're going to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I have it up here on the screen, but it's a longer passage. Like, I don't know what it is. It's going to be seven verses we'll look at. So... Um, you might be better off going in your own Bible there to take a look at it. I'll be coming back to this. So if you didn't quite get it, we'll come back to it. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And just note, as you're thinking about that, the similar context. So we're talking about the same recipients, the same believers, and writing to them only shortly after this first letter. So they're really in very similar circumstances. Also note, this is in chapter 1. So this is still in his thanksgiving for them, a very similar type of context. Here, in this section, chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see that their perseverance is specifically in the face of persecution. So let's go ahead and read it here, and I'll make some more observations. Paul writes, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance. See that? For your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So that, first of all, just really su strongly suggests that even as Paul's writing to uh, in the first letter, the first letter to the Thessalonians, that when he speaks of perseverance, he there has in mind persecutions and afflictions. Now, what he's going to share with us next, beginning in verse 5, is essentially what it is, the hope they have that will motivate perseverance. He doesn't use the word hope, but you'll see it's essentially a promise about what will happen in the future in relation to their persecutions that should motivate their perseverance now. So I think this is helpful. It's a helpful parallel and that it helps us see what Paul understands this hope to be in, in a context of persecution. Let's continue reading here. Verse 5. Paul says, This, the fact they're persecuting you, is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Or you could say worthy of partaking in and sharing in the reign of God for which you are indeed suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you 
and to give relief to you who are so afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. So among all the... among the things he tells them will happen in the future, specifically note he says God will punish those who persecute believers such that, and considered in light of that, we will consider our lot to have been many times better than theirs. Think about that. We will consider, on that day, we will consider our lot to have been on the receiving end of their persecutions to be many times better than their lot to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. And secondly, believers will be relieved, he says, of their afflictions. They will be brought to an end. Now, I don't have time to expand on how we might balance pity for unbelievers and kind of a desire to make sure they avoid this and yet also finding hope in the fact that this is what they're destined for. Of course, unless they repent. Paul's a good example of that. Unless they repent peace, right? He was a persecutor of the church and yet he himself is now on this side of it because of repentance. But for now, I just want us to see that we are, we are to set our hope on this great rendering of justice at Christ's coming. This is something that should encourage us to persevere in the present. <clears throat> and this isn't really the only place where Paul mentions that kind of thing as the object of hope. If you just read the book of Revelation through, you will find again and again that not only is the exaltation and reward of believers held out. But again and again, John holds out the judgment coming upon unbelievers as a motivation to persevere in following Christ. You do not want to be among them, right? And whatever you might experience in terms of persecutions is a small matter. In fact, he specifically sets this up, John does in the book of Revelation, around the mark of the beast. First showing that before Christ's coming, that those who receive the mark of the beast seem to do fine in life, and those who don't really struggle. And yet, he shows, like that becomes a theme then from that point on in the book of Revelation, that those who received it are those who are on the receiving end of God's wrath. And just shows how terrible that is. And those who didn't receive the mark are those who, in the resurrection, are the ones reigning. Blessed by the Lord. And the whole point is to show you that long view so that you say that whatever persecutions we might endure in the present are but a small matter. And that motivates perseverance. It motivates perseverance because it counters the lie. It counters the lie that Christ and his followers lose. It counters the lie that Christ and his followers lose. That they are perpetually defeated that they get the short end of the stick, that they are on the losing end of history. That's a lie. Give it just a little while longer and the situation will look very different. In fact, we might say exactly the opposite. That though, believing that, they give it just a little while longer and it will look very different. That, believing that is the essence of hope. And that's what motivates perseverance. 
Keeping that in view will motivate our perseverance in the present. Think about it this way. When you are being persistently afflicted by someone and there is no end in sight, no hope for change, it's very hard to continue, isn't it? It's easy to despair when there's no, no end in sight, no plan for this to change. You have no idea how much longer it will go on. But if you could see an axe raised over their head and knew it would be brought down on them at any moment, you would look at the situation of your afflictor very differently, wouldn't you? You might actually pity them rather than yourself. I think of a parallel here I'm not going to spend much time on, but in Philippians 4, Paul speaks of making your gentleness known to all men. And what does he say next? The Lord is near, by which he might mean some sort of present spatial nearness, but it seems like at least the primary point here is a a coming nearness, temporal nearness. The Lord is near. So how does knowing that the Lord is near encourage us to be gentle with those who tempt us not to be gentle? Well, because when we know that the Lord is coming to to render justice, that reminds us that we don't have to claim justice for ourselves, do we? I've often thought in the context of that, just another little imagery you know, imagine a, a child, two, two, two siblings in the room, in a room, their bedroom, and the door is closed, and one of them's picking on the other one and been doing it for some time, and the one of them that's being picked on is just at their wit's end. They're absolutely exhausted, ready to start swinging. And, but they're, they're positioned so that they can see the door on the far side of the sibling that's bothering them, and that they're just angry, and that sibling's still there, and then suddenly they see the door open. Right, And there's the parent in the doorway. And they know it, but the, the other one afflicting them doesn't know that. Now they're going to look at any, any you know, more nagging from a different light, aren't they? They're going to be smirking as they're nagged because they know you've got it coming to you. And keep doing that and mom is going to see all of it, right? And it's, it's somewhat similar. I don't mean to make it crass or simple, but somewhat similar for believers when we have this hope. Christ is coming and he will make all things right. And that allows us to persevere, knowing that whatever injustice is, all the injustices which we see around us and which believers are on the receiving end of in this world will be made right. On the one hand, this seems to have relevance only for a future day, right? When, when Christians here in our context might be persecuted. That's true. I want us to be prepared for that with this hope. But also... Most of us, and I think this is probably a pretty common, a pretty common experience, right? You, you hear things, headlines, whether they're true headlines, conspiracy theories, whatever they are, you hear things about what's going on, what might be coming, and you begin to get anxious, right? Can you sympathize with that? Your mind begins to roll like, ah, oh, what's coming, and those types of things, even if you don't find yourself doing it, you just slowly begin to get irritable and anxious and concerned. We quickly go down that road of anxiety. And on the one hand, so think about it from two angles, on the one hand, this is just dishonoring to the Lord because we aren't trusting him with what he has planned for us in the future, right? We're beginning to fret about what's going to come. We don't even know what's going to come. And we just need to trust him with that. And cherishing this hope will help on that front because it will help us to counter that fear. 
But in addition to being presently dishonoring to the Lord, it also undermines our present usefulness. Those types of fears and anxieties undermine our present usefulness. When we become anxious, we naturally turn inward and start thinking defensively. Isn't that true? We begin to lose sight of the offensive task before us. There's still a commission left to us. And the New Testament again and again testifies. We see in the lives of the Thessalonians that that offensive task of going forward with God's reconciling message is going to happen in the midst of persecution. Like one of the biggest lies is that, hey, persecution in America will be bad for missions. I understand why we can reason all that out, but no, that's the plan. Like it goes forward in the midst of hardship. But when we begin to get defensive and fearful, we won't be faithful in that. It will still go forward, but we won't be playing a part in that. There's still an offensive task to be had, and we must not get back on a defensive foot. You might, to use the metaphor of plowing, you might think of keeping your hands on the plow when you see armies coming on the horizon, right? The temptation is to drop the plow and start building some sort of battlement, right? And say, who cares about fruitfulness? I've got to save my life, right? But what we're called to do is leave that to the Lord, keep your hands on the plow and keep plowing. Keep at it. There will be times where the temptation is to say, hey, I want to watch out for my family, so I hear about this city in America that is trying to set up some sort of Christian commune that will be safe from these things. And all the while, pull themselves out of the fruitfulness they need to be engaging in, essentially abdicating the mission of Christ. I don't think you guys got a chance to meet him. You, you did, and several of you guys did. Omri Miles um, was from inner city St. Louis, which doesn't usually get registered on headlines like Chicago or Washington, D.C., but is up there for violence and uh, somehow got to Phoenix and spent some time in Phoenix. But he just went back with a number of church members from this church in Phoenix, sent back to the inner city um, to be able to plant a church there and reach those people because no one wants to go to inner city New Orleans. Where did I say? Sorry, not St. Louis. St. Louis is bad too. <laughs> Maybe worse, but no, sorry, New Orleans. New Orleans is where he's going to. To inner city New Orleans to be able to plant a church there among a people that are hard, hard to reach. For a, you know, it's just there's not good education. There's a lot of things going that are difficult to, to overcome. And it was just interesting as he was having to shepherd those families coming from a nice suburban neighborhood in Phoenix to go there. And they're thinking about the violence, the danger, um, and even doing things like, you know, going to the police station to find out, well, if we're going to be here in this general locality, what's the measure of crime on this street as opposed to this street? Because if we can be on this street, that's a little bit less crime. That may be better than being on this street because we can always walk over here to evangelize people, right? Um, but just that kind of an issue where even in the police station, the police officer saying, don't do it. I wouldn't recommend you do that. But just saying, like, those people have to be reached. And so that's what you, where you have to go. See how that, that hope? That hope will motivate an offensive move to carry forward the mission of Christ and to persevere in that in a way that lacking that hope will. Won't, won't, won't motivate that. What we need to see 
is that a biblical view of the future future is exceedingly optimistic. Exceedingly optimistic. That's what Paul holds forth in that 2 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians 1 passage. An optimism about justice and all things being made right. When Christ returns, he will make all things right, punishing those who have lived all their lives in rebellion and rewarding all those who have trusted Christ, rewarding us far beyond anything we could ever imagine. And when we believe that, when we've set our hope on Christ, we've set our hope on all that he will accomplish when he returns at his coming, we will have the motivation to persevere in the face of persecution. And even before then, we will be helped to not fear and cower in the present in anticipation of that, but to continue on in fruitfulness. We're out of time, but do you guys have any quick thoughts or questions before I pray for us? Yeah. Just real quick. First uh, Peter, I love this term. You know, you're talking about hope in general. He yeah. calls it a living hope. That's excellent. And that's exactly what I think he means by it. It's an active hope, right? It's, yeah. it's something that animates us. Yeah. That's excellent. It's an excellent cross reference there. Yep. All right. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for the hope that we have because of you. You've made this hope possible. We deserve none of what you've promised you will accomplish for us at your coming. Not even being spared from your wrath. And yet, you promise us so much. May we believe that and may that motivate perseverance in the present, regardless of what might tempt us to cease following Christ or cease being fruitful in following you. Cease plowing the field you've given us to plow. I pray, Lord, for these dear brothers and sisters, as well as myself, that you would help us to to make obvious, clear progress in embracing and living by this hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.